Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. The Winter Olympics are underway right now in China, and 29 of the Team USA athletes call California home. That's more than any other state, if you're keeping track. Now, some of you will remember, but back in 1960, California hosted the Winter Games near Lake Tahoe. Opened one of the world's most majestic sports events. In the spectacular beginning, in a spectacular setting, high in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The 1960 Olympics were pretty small in comparison to today's games. 30 countries participated instead of the 91 competing in Beijing right now, and there were far fewer events. But what happened in Tahoe that year had an outsize and lasting impact. And not just on future Olympics. It helped transform sports into mass entertainment and turned the U.S. West Coast into a coveted destination for anyone who likes to spend their time zipping about on snow or ice myself very much included. It changed the course of winter sports in the West. Yet how these Olympic Games came to be in California is kind of a miracle. It's a David and Goliath story. This is Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Pull on your snow pants because on this week's episode, we revisit those 1960 Olympic Games. This story has razzle-dazzle, it has controversy, it has a little romance. We'll get to that right after this. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the improbable history and legacy of the 1960 Winter Games, we're heading to the mountains. Reporter Chloe Velpin takes us there. Osvaldo and Eddie and Sinus live in Olympic Valley, right where the 1960 Olympics took place. Back then, Osvaldo was a dashing member of Argentina's ski team. And uh, when I arrived in 1960 and the Argentine Olympic team, I did the three Alpine events, downhill, giant slalom and slalom. Eddie, who's from the East Bay but was living in San Francisco at the time, was among the clatch of young multilingual women drafted in to make the visiting dignitaries feel welcome. We greeted all the International Olympic Committee members, picked them up at the airport. So we were given these red Pontiacs to drive, went to a lot of parties and receptions. Eddie and Osvaldo met while out skiing, soon after the Games came to an end. He was getting on the chairlift, and I skied up to him and I said, are you a single? I could have taken the next chair, but (laughs) that wouldn't be fun. This is what I always said, but last time I was single. The international sports event that kick-started their romance happened more than six decades ago. Yet the octogenarian couple talk about the Tahoe Olympics with a sense of immediacy and warmth. It's like when you meet a wonderful family, <laughs> you know. Eddie recalls the night she and her friend Marsha snuck into the Olympic Village. The facility which housed the athletes for the duration of the event was officially off limits to nearly everyone else. There was a well-worn path through the woods into the Olympic Village and every every night they had a <clears throat> performances. Marsha said, we'll just say we're press. So we did. And Osvaldo, who isn't just a former Olympian, but also sings, plays guitar and yodels, remembers a folk song he sang in a talent contest for athletes one night. Osvaldo and Eddie say the 1960 Olympics weren't just memorable for the participants. The event had a lasting impact worldwide because of the many firsts and innovations that happened there. Technologies that we consider commonplace today were pioneered or developed at those games, like instant replay and elaborate timekeeping processes. The electric starting gate for the downhill run, for instance, immediately sets in motion the timing devices at the finish, including this flashing clock mounted on the judges' stand. Cutting-edge IT systems. All the machinery of modern data processing is put to use. Punched cards, random access memories, high-speed printers, and a computer. Even the refrigeration system for the speed skating oval was a game changer. It's the first artificially refrigerated one ever used in Olympic competition. And then there was the involvement of Walt Disney. As the pageantry chairman at the 1960 Olympics, the entertainment king and winter sports enthusiast turned the event into a theatrical extravaganza worthy of TV. Victory ceremonies crown each day with pomp and pageantry. 
In fact, this was the first time the Olympics was televised live nationwide. CBS bought the exclusive rights for $50,000. Disney's team drafted in choirs and bands and created giant white statues of athletes that looked like they were carved out of ice. At various points, they released fireworks, balloons and even pigeons into the sky. Eddie says the event took on an almost supernatural quality under Disney's direction, especially after a heavy snowstorm delayed the start of the opening ceremony. Blizzard suddenly ended and the sun came out and the sky was blue. So it was kind of like this moment, like maybe God had a hand in this or something. There's a lot of mythologizing around the 1960 Olympics. There's the story of the US men's ice hockey team's triumph against the fearsome Soviets, a big deal during the Cold War. And then there's the one about how the Games even made it to that obscure corner of the Sierra Nevada in the first place. There was nothing there, so they had a clean slate, and to make that into an Olympic site was quite a feat. But what tends to get lost in accounts of the 1960 Olympic Games is the fact that they took place on unceded indigenous lands, stolen land that had belonged to tribal peoples for thousands of years. While people view this land as pristine and untouched, this land was actually shaped by indigenous peoples and our cultures. This is Herman Fillmore. He's the Culture and Language Resources Director for the Washu Tribe of Nevada and California. He says at the time of the Olympics, his tribe was in the middle of a decades-long lawsuit against the federal government for the theft of roughly six million acres of Washu lands, including the area where the Olympics were held. The Washu had never formally entered into a treaty nor received compensation for their land. While Washu people were undergoing a court case to um, gain any sort of restitution for the taking of our land, we kind of coincidentally have the Olympics where other nations are freely welcome to Washu homelands, um, a place that Washu people were no longer allowed to be. Both the tribe and local historians say the Olympic organizers did not consult Washu people about their plans. To make matters worse, owners named the resort that hosted the games Squaw Valley, a racist and misogynistic term used for indigenous women. Settlers had given the land that name in the mid-19th century. The resort kept it until September 2021, when management rebranded it Palisades Tahoe. Tribal members had been asking for the derogatory name to be removed for years. Despite indigenous people's long claim to this land, most historical accounts of the Tahoe Olympics begin with a picture of a sparkling white landscape, practically untouched by human hands. There was almost nothing here. One lift, two rope toes, a lodge, and a dirt road leading to it off the highway. And there were only two year-round families that lived in the valley itself. David Antonucci is an avid cross-country skier, longtime Tahoe resident, and the author of the book Snowball's Chance, the story of the 1960 Olympic Winter Games. He takes us back to the waning days of 1954. Alex Cushing, who is a co-founder of what was then known as the Squaw Valley Ski Area, uh, was reading the paper. And Cushing saw that the city of Reno was submitting a bid to host the 1960 Winter Olympics. He figured, why not pitch his own little ski resort? So he hurriedly put together a proposal, got a few rich and powerful friends on board, and made his case before the US Olympic Committee in New York. 
And much to the surprise of everybody, the U.S. Olympic Committee decided to nominate Squaw Valley to host the 1960 Winter Olympics. But Cushing still had to travel to Paris and convince the International Olympic Committee that Tahoe should host the Games. Even though he had the backing of the state of California and the federal government, his chances looked pretty slim. He's being told, forget it. You've got no chance. People in the Olympic community said Innsbruck, Austria has it tied up. You're just wasting your time. Cushing and his team worked their contacts around the globe. The lobbying effort included the then unorthodox step of printing their proposal in Spanish, not just the official Olympic languages of English and French, and meeting with International Olympic Committee representatives in South America. To get their support and to make sure they would be in attendance and could vote. The plan worked. After two nail-biting rounds of voting, Dave says California prevailed, beating Innsbruck by just a couple of votes. And the world was shocked. If you visit Palisades Tahoe, the mountains are just as awe-striking today as they likely were back in 1960. David Antonucci points out where some of the Olympic races took place. If we look up this canyon here, this was the uh, men's downhill course that started up on that peak, which is called Palisades. And the Olympic logo, with its five colourful interlocking circles symbolising global unity, is a favourite location for a photo op. But only a smattering of the original Olympic-era structures remain, like the Olympic Village Lodge, part of the building complex that was used to house the athletes for the duration of the Games. What a cool building. I love the ceilings. So high. Yeah, it's very uh, mid-century. We're standing in the Olympic Village Lodge's cavernous dining hall. It's where the athletes came together to socialise, eat and enjoy evening performances by some of the leading acts of the day like Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. Snow, 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 snow. Walt Disney arranged for entertainment every night and that was held in this room. But this historic building, like the others, isn't in great shape. The dining room roof is currently propped up by steel columns. After the Olympics, the facilities were originally to be operated by the state of California through its Department of Parks and Recreation as a, as a public winter recreation site, but it never became viable. Dave says the state eventually sold the buildings off bit by bit to developers and investors. And gradually it all ended up under control of the ski area. The current resort owner proposed a plan in 2016 that involves demolishing at least some of the historic buildings in order to make way for new development, including high-rise lodging and an indoor water park. Local anti-development activists managed to stall these plans in court. But Dave says it's only a matter of time before the historic buildings come down. He feels sad about it, but admits the structures mostly fall short of current ADA and energy conservation standards. Well, something has to happen. These buildings are at the end of their useful life. 
Ever since the 1980s, a variety of local groups have been working to bring the Olympics back to the Sierra Nevada. But tonight, some of the top regional leaders met to determine if Lake Tahoe can host the Games. And his case, Aaron I put the idea to Eddie and Osvaldo Encinas, the couple we met earlier in the story. After all, they have nothing but positive memories of the 1960 event. Would you want the Olympics to come back to this part of the world? I don't know. It's just so different right now. I but think I know it's just, just too much, and the cost is going to be is horrible. Yeah. Billions. Yeah. We, we, so we don't want to do that. Ever since the 1980s, a variety of local groups have been working to bring the Olympics back to the Sierra Nevada. The most recent efforts fell by the wayside in 2018, but that doesn't put a definitive end to the possibility of the Games returning at some point down the line. In the meantime, Eddie and Osvaldo are part of a group working to salvage the region's Olympic history as best as they can. They're planning to build a 20,000 square foot museum at the entrance to Olympic Valley, right where the Olympic torch still burns. That was reporter Chloe Veltman. A new voting round is up at baycurious.org, and we're asking you to help us consider what to report next. This month, we've got questions about Monterey Jack cheese, the proliferation of Raiders gear, and the history of Benkyoto Bakery in San Francisco's Japantown. Head to our website and cast your vote. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, Sebastian Mignobuccelli, and me, Olivia Allen-Price. Have a good one. I cannot do it now. I'm, I'm too old for that. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQD Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.